Thank you. Good morning. We'll have you turn to Philippians chapter 4. You know, Brandon promised you I was going to finish Philippians over the next three weeks. I hope I can do that. No, I think, I, I think I'll be able to. Um, except, uh, Matt informed me this morning that in all the recorded videos of my Philippian sermons, apparently I'm wearing this shirt. So if you watch them all the way through, it's going to look like I was here for like 16 hours preaching. So <laughs> I can't keep track of what shirts I wear when. Um, so in chapter 4 in Philippians, that's where we're going to pick up. And in the middle of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we find ourselves reading about how that church has blessed Paul in the area of giving and receiving. And they've done so more than any other church. Um, he talks about that. And Paul has, he has quite a bit to say, actually, uh, and teach us in this passage about the benefits of churches partnering with uh, those who are bringing the gospel to other nations. Um, of course, we would recognize that today as how we support foreign missionaries, people that are on the foreign mission field, and we support them. So same, it's the same concept. It's been going on through the history of the church. Um, and although Paul introduces this topic in verse 10, that's where we're we'll starting today, verse 10, he introduces this topic there, and that topic will go through uh, verse 18, but he rabbit trails a bit in here to handle something of great importance. Um, and after be, after uh, bringing up it, Bringing it up in verse 10 in terms of the joy that he has experienced because of their uh, renewed giving to him, he quickly departs from this topic to give clarification and instruction about something else. And it's a bit of a parenthetical statement, you might say. He, he starts talking about one thing and stops to say something else and then returns to finish um, his original course. Well, why does he do this? What is it? that diverts his attention and causes him to switch topics for three verses and then come back. It was his own statement about rejoicing in their gift. He clearly felt his words brought about the need to clarify his meaning. He didn't want the church to misunderstand. He didn't want them to be confused or think he meant something else by it. And it becomes a theological question and Paul realized the danger in them taking what he said in verse 10 and coming up with the wrong understanding about what Paul believed about God, or even worse, coming up with a wrong understanding about the sovereignty and sufficiency of God for themselves. And we'll see that the topic Paul diverts to here is that of Christian contentment. Okay, and that's what I've titled the sermon today. If you're a note taker, the title of the sermon is Christian Contentment. Paul didn't want them to think he was not fully content in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he said about receiving their gift, how grateful he was for that. Uh, this, this is not an afterthought from Paul, however, but a clarification to stave off confusion. If, if he had all his eggs in one basket, he wanted them to know they were not in the basket of truly needing anything from them. He did have all his eggs in one basket, for contentment, as we will see, and it should be the same for us. So today I'm going to preach the parentheses okay, on, the, on the secret of Christian contentment. Should we be content? 
Why should we? Why and how can we be content in our circumstances? And why are we often not content? My prayer today is that we'll leave here more content in Christ than when we showed up. And I also want us to have a renewed and refreshed understanding of the connection between God's sovereignty and providence and the virtue of Christian contentment. And next week, we'll come back to look at what Paul says about the Philippians, Philippian church's giving and support for him and all the blessings that proceed from that. But for today, we're going to preach on contentment. So let's do our scripture reading, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we can come and and read your word, that we can be informed by it. And I do pray this morning, Lord, as we talk about the subject of contentment, that we would have refreshed or new understanding, Lord, that we would understand how to view our circumstances in life in light of our relationship with Christ, in light of who you are as sovereign God over all things, that we can trust you with everything. God, you are an amazing God. You have given us everything we need. I thank you for the songs we could sing that reflect this message this morning. Pray even as we leave today that those songs would be resonating in our minds. We would use them things like them, Lord, that that's really speak Scripture to encourage our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, bring about a joy in us, no matter what our circumstances, because our sins are forgiven in Christ, and someday he will come and take us home. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Paul says in verse 10, I received, I'm sorry, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, we want to look at this briefly to see why Paul had to change subjects. What he is rejoicing in the Lord about here is that a man named Epaphroditus, a member of the Philippian church, had come and brought him a gift from the church. In fact, he, he stuck around to minister to Paul. Um, and so he came and brought this financial gift, however much it was, and I'm sure it wasn't just a financial gift, and of course it was a gift of him himself as a helper too. Um, and at this situation, we have to remember Paul is in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. In part, he's writing this letter to thank them for their generosity um, that had until now been lacking for some period of time. We don't, we don't know how long, and we don't even know why they had no opportunity, but Paul says they had no opportunity to support him. Um, again, we'll talk more about that next week. But Paul did not want them to think that he had or was placing too much um, or the wrong emphasis on getting their gift. 
So he says what he does in verse 11, and this is the transition point. And we can see him pivot very clearly here when he says in verse 11, if you look there, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, he wants them to know his statement about rejoicing in their gift had nothing to do with being in need, which is interesting because was Paul in need? Yeah, he was. And just so you know, that's, he's basically saying, just so you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being in need. So don't think it because I'm already content in whatever situation I find myself. He wanted them to know that and understand that. And by default, you and I need to know and understand that. Maybe you don't think about it much, but contentment, whether people know it or not, is something everyone is looking for. We're all looking for contentment. In fact, it's a biblical Christian virtue. Sadly, it's very much neglected, a very much neglected Christian virtue, because in our broken thinking, we misunderstand what brings about true contentment. For most people, though they are blind to it, they think contentment comes from control, um, comfort, or possessions. This is where we think we find contentment. If I can just control things or control people or my circumstances, if I can just maintain a, a comfort, comfortable life free from sickness and, and problems, wouldn't that be great? If I can just acquire and possess enough stuff to be comfortable in my circumstances, then my circumstances will change. The money will help my circumstances change. This is all very common, but wrong thinking. And it's interesting, if you look at the world's religions and, and even at secular philosophy, it's widely understood that acquiring money and goods will not ultimately lead to contentment. Everyone really knows this. There are plenty of studies showing it as well. The basic understanding of contentment in the world is that it is found when one is satisfied with what one already has and find happiness in that. So if, if everyone understands that concept, though it's not completely biblical, why is almost nobody content? I think it's because we can say we understand that concept, but at the same time we think it'll be different for me. It doesn't work for them. It'll be different for me. We convince ourselves that when we, we reach a certain level of financial stability or of physical health or relational happiness or if we control things into just the right place in life, everything will be just right. But it's a lie. All you have to do is look at your own life and the lives of everyone else and we can instantly know that things will never always be just right. It's not reality, but we keep striving for it, don't we? Why? Because we, by design, want contentment. We were made to be content. If you think about it, those who advertise and they're selling products and services, they're selling you contentment. Because they know it's what you're looking for, and they, they have the answers, don't they, with the products they're selling. A company slogan is all about what they believe you think you need. And the themes are all about how much better they are, cheaper they are, faster they are, all, with all the things we want to make life better, easier, more comfortable. They play on both your desire for contentment 
and at the same time on the fact that you're never content. So I, I looked up some slogans. And these will sound familiar to you, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll already know them. And it's funny, as I looked at these, I thought, man, I haven't heard these in years, but as soon as I saw it, I remembered it. Um, so, so they could specifically target your desire for contentment. Like Burger King says, have it your way. That's their slogan. Coca-Cola says, open happiness. And Disneyland, this is a big lie. It's the what? Happiest place on earth, right? If you're a parent, you've been there with your kids, you know that's not true. They're all running around screaming and crying everywhere. Um, it's the happiest place to leave on earth. So Walmart says, save money, live better. Greyhound, leave the driving to us. Hershey's, pure happiness. Yeah. <laughs> but they also target your propensity to never be content. What does Wendy's say? Well, they did back in the 80s. Where's the beef, right? They had that old lady at the counter. She could barely see over it. Where's the beef? Cinnamon Toast Crunch says, crave those crazy squares. What does Sprite say? Obey your thirst. And FedEx says, when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Bounty is the quicker picker-upper. And Lay's really... Lay's potato chips, they really play on this. Bet you can't eat just one, right? Hey, they know you're not content. They're just going to use it. Buy our stuff. You'll never be content, but keep eating them. And the problem is these are all offering you, at best, temporary satisfaction. Right? It's not really contentment because you will always need it again. You'll crave it again, etc. Until we understand that contentment will never be found in anything this world has to offer, we'll keep searching for it in vain. We won't find it. We think we'll find it in money and possessions, but we know from watching our celebrity culture that the acquisition of money and fame and stuff is often followed by misery, broken relationships, drug abuse, and suicide. How many times have you thought to yourself, they had everything, why would they do that? because they're not finding contentment, and they can't in those things. Where is the contentment that was supposed to be there? It's not. We're always looking in the wrong places, and contentment is not found in gaining stuff. Actually, the Bible tells us that contentment itself is gain. Not stuff to be content, but contentment itself is gain. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So Christian, get that straight in your mind. Don't equate contentment with possessions or comfort or control, period. That is not how it works. In fact, you will not find a content person in the Bible who is so apart from great trials and adversity. You won't find it. Was the Apostle Paul content? Yes. The whole point of his parenthetical statement here is, is given to prove that he was content. The question we must ask are how and why? How and why could Paul be content? If we are searching for it in vain, but Paul has discovered the secret of contentment, what is it? It's not a formula. 
or an emotion. It's not a matter of willing yourself to be content. It's not a matter of things going your way. We often think that's what will bring contentment. What did Paul say again in the second part of verse 11? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This, as we will see, is a gracious gift from God through the work of the Holy Spirit only in the hearts of those who are born-again believers. They're the only ones that can find true contentment. And if you're a believer today and you're struggling with contentment, we need, you need to start rethinking things. The reason is the believer, like Paul, has learned to be content. So the first point, if you're a note-taker, is contentment is learned. Okay? Contentment is learned. Paul said, I have learned. Not I made myself content, not I did the right things to be content, or I have obtained all the things I need to be content, but I have learned. By definition, he was not content in his circumstances before, and now he is. And it is not because the church sent him money or help. What do we know about Paul's life that fits with our world's notion of contentment? Nothing. There is no similarities or shared understandings as to the nature and source of contentment here between Paul's contentment and the world, what the world says brings contentment. In fact, when you look at what we know of Paul's life, and if you laid it all out and asked folks if they would be content in similar circumstances, I think they would laugh at you. Are you kidding me? Why would I be content living Paul's life? Where is Paul when he's writing this letter describing how content he is? He's in prison, shackled to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And though he's in some sort of house or apartment, um, he, he has no freedom. Uh, he had to live there at his own expense for two years. He had no way to work, so he relied on the help of family and friends to help with expenses, to care for him and provide for his needs, his physical needs. And this was, this was probably the most comfortable of Paul's several imprisonments if you can think of it as being comfortable. And the word Paul used here has the meaning of learning by experience. This is what we need to understand. Learning by experience. He learned, but he learned by experience. Let's look at the other areas of comfort, wealth, and ease of living that we see in Paul's life. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, these things that have taught him contentment. Let's look, look with me at 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 23. 2 Corinthians, not first, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is Paul speaking, and he's speaking about false apostles. He's sort of refuting false apostles here. Um, that's, that's the they he's talking about. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, 
danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Does that that bring about contentment? Not, Not in our world's way of thinking. He lays these things out here out of necessity as part of his refutation of the false apostles. And we can use them to see he had anything but a life of ease and comfort and wealth. When Paul says he learned contentment, this is what he's talking about. The things he laid out there, that's what he's talking about, of of how he learned contentment. He learned it the hard way, by experience. And let me tell you, Christian, he learned it the only way. This is the pathway to contentment for Christians. And I know it goes against the senses, but it's the truth. Suffering, trials, pain, loss, etc. are necessary. And not only that, they're also a part of God's providence for your life. Paul has already proven that in chapter 1 of this letter where he encouraged, I'm talking about Philippians again, um, where he encouraged the people to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. In Philippians 1.29, he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See, it says this was granted, it was given to Christians to suffer for Christ's sake. These are not just things that happen to you. Talking about your circumstances in life. They're not just things that happen to you, they are for you, for your good. Actually, a gift from God, used by God to sanctify you and teach you to recognize your complete reliance on Him. God is sovereign over your life and the events of your life, bringing about contentment in the, in the fact that He's in control and not you. Contentment comes because God is in control and not you. That's a good thing because the one in control loves you and disciplines you or trains you as a father does his son. When we fight against God being in control, it doesn't take away his control. It just brings more misery for us. Your hardships may not all look like Paul's, but you have them, don't you? You're thinking of them right now. You're thinking of what your hardships are right now. But unlike Paul's example What do we normally do? We grumble about them and consider them as only as bad things. When was the last time you thought about your trials in life and boasted in how God is using those to glorify himself? Your body doesn't work right, or you're always in pain. You have a broken relationship. You're miserable because you're looking for contentment in your own happiness and your pursuit of self-satisfaction. You may or may not keep your job, or you've lost your job already. You're worried about not having enough money or about your future. You're living with the consequences of your sin. It's painful. 
whatever it is, what have you concluded about God? That you can trust Him? So we try to avoid any hardship. We try to change and manipulate things. We try to control things. And the more we do, the less content we are because the reality is we are not in control. We can't control people. We can't control our outcomes. God can. And God does. Every millisecond of every day, your life is in his hands. God is not discovering the days of your life as they happen. He has them mapped out from before you were born. Think about that. The things that happen to you, God's not going, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Psalm 139, verse 16 says about God, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How amazing is that? Not only did God knit you together in your mother's womb, but he also formed every day for you. Every day of your life. What you're going through is not a mistake. Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is taking credit for making people in a way that we think is only bad. We think it's a mistake. Are these things extreme hardships for those folks? Yes, but they're not mistakes or things just happening. They are meant to show people their need for the Lord. And this has become so hard for us to understand because we have the earthly viewpoint that God is very concerned about our contentment being in a comfortable life and good health and a lot of stuff. But that is not the message in the Bible and is not the lessons learned that Paul learned by experience. And let's be clear, Paul's hardships, that, that whole list of horrible things that he had to go through were not because he sinned. They were because he was a faithful servant of God. But you think, well, I was told a faithful servant of God would be blessed by God with freedom and happiness and prosperity and good health. Unfortunately, if you listen to the swarms of prosperity preachers our country produces, you would think this is true. But they are ungodly people. They are selling a false gospel of contentment and health and wealth and happiness. That is not what the Bible says. Friends, read your Bibles. Don't be deceived by those lies that leave you confused by your circumstances. With your faith shaken and countless doubts about the trustworthiness of God, this is what causes a lack of contentment. Not truly knowing who God is and how he brings about contentment through your trials and suffering not the absence of them. He brings it about through them. Paul knew God. He most likely knew him more deeply than you and I because of the great suffering God brought into his life. So Paul can say he has learned by experience to be content in every situation that he's in. 
In verse 12 in Philippians 4, he gives us some examples of specific things he learned to be content in. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here Paul is speaking about being moved from one state to the other. Not state like the United States, but a state of being. There's there's a change here uh, where he has at times experienced being brought down to humble means and other times being brought into abundance. The context in this passage is in terms of the physical or material earthly things that are needed. We all need certain things. It's the same when he talks about plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. These are the basic things of life. And he has experienced all of it and learned the secret of facing fluctuation from going from one to the other. This experience can leave a person feeling like nobody, especially themselves, is in control or can control it. Our circumstances leave us feeling out of control sometimes, often. And we would be right that nobody's in control but for the sovereign God of the universe, and that's the point. Here Paul sets the parameters for what he has learned about contentment. Just when you and I are tempted to think our circumstances are perhaps not included because they are so difficult, right? They're not in this list. My, my problems are so bad, they're not, they're not counted in here. But Paul crushes that thought. He says, in any and every circumstance. So you name it, whatever it is in your life. He says, any and every circumstance. He says, it's all-encompassing. No situation or circumstance where he has not learned the secret of contentment. The language Paul uses here has the meaning of being initiated into discontentment. It was a process, not all at once, but through the rigorous process of painful events and circumstances. So not having received from the giving of the church for however long it was, and then receiving it had nothing to do with Paul's contentment. He learned through fiery trials, that even if his life is taken from him, he can be content because he knows the truth about God. This goes back to the beginning of this chapter where we learned about not being anxious about anything, but instead bringing everything to God in prayer. We saw in verse 7, God said through Paul, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The reason we can trust God with that promise is the same reason we can be content through the sufferings and hardships of life. He is in control. God has said we will suffer. And he has said we can trust him with our lives. The question is, do we believe it? Do you believe you can trust God as you look at your circumstances, as you experience your circumstances, Do you believe it? Second point, contentment is based in truth. Contentment is based in truth. 
we think wrongly about contentment because of what we hold as the authority in our lives. If the wisdom of the world and our own reasoning is our standard for truth, we will never find contentment. We are left to misunderstand how we should feel about our trials, about our circumstances. If, however, the Word of God is your authority, our standard, our source of truth, we will have true wisdom leading to contentment. Why? Because we will know the Lord God Almighty and that, as Jeff read earlier, He will never leave us nor forsake us. We go wrong because we look at our circumstances in our own lack of wisdom and we conclude God is not there. God doesn't care. He doesn't know what's happening or how difficult this is for me because if He did, He would change my circumstances. Would He though? Is that what we've learned from Paul? Is that what God is working out for you in life? Better circumstances? That doesn't accord with the truth. Go back to 2 Corinthians with me, please. Chapter 12. This is the whole 11 and 12, this whole continuation of Paul's refutation of the false apostles. And here he gives more detail in this familiar passage about the thorn in his flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We look at verses 7 through 10. He's been talking about this vision God gave him. And now he says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." You see, Paul's asking God to change his circumstances. Notice, Paul doesn't talk to Satan. He doesn't rebuke Satan because of this messenger of his that's this, this thorn in Paul's flesh. Why not? Why doesn't he confront Satan? Because Paul knows who's in control, and it's not the devil. The devil can only do what God permits him to do. So Paul goes directly to the sovereign. He prays multiple times for God to take it away. But God is not interested in changing Paul's circumstances here any more than he was interested in preventing him from being given 39 lashes five separate times at the hands of the Jews. Going by the theology of many Christians today, God is clearly unhappy with Paul. Paul must have sinned. He, he must not have enough faith. There's no way God would treat one of his beloved children this way. 
Oh, have we forgotten the suffering of the Lamb of God? The eternal Son who was turned over to men and beaten beyond recognition by the plan and purpose of his own Father. Have we forgotten that the Son was forsaken of the Father and that it pleased God to crush him? Have we forgotten that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, suffered in our place to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Have we forgotten what kind of suffering God himself has endured? Would he not permit his children to suffer then for the sake of Christ in order to bring the light of the gospel to all men? So God does not relieve Paul's suffering, though he is the only one who can. What does God do instead? He tells Paul the truth. God grounds Paul's perspective on his suffering in the truth about God's own character. What does he say to Paul instead of taking the thorn away? One of the most beautiful, wonderful truths in all of Scripture in the first part of verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Here God is offering his all-sufficient grace in Paul's time of need. That's no small thing. In fact, it is, is in a, it's in a Christian's weakness that the power of God is most graciously experienced. Instead of ignoring God, wallowing in your grief and fear and grumbling about your circumstances, come to Him in humble prayer and ask Him for His grace. Let your understanding of suffering be based in this truth, as Paul did, and contentment will result. Paul knew this to be true, so his contentment was based on this truth. After God refuses to change Paul's circumstances and and instead tells Paul that his grace is sufficient for him, Paul doesn't argue. He doesn't yell at God. He doesn't disbelieve God. He doesn't look for a second opinion. He doesn't conclude there is no God or that God is far off or that he's being punished. Look at Paul's contentment in his circumstances when God's word is is believed. The rest of verse 9 says, this is Paul now, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Does that sound like your response to your trials and sufferings in life? Do you see the difference in handling hardship the Christian can have by knowing the truth about who God is and that your suffering is not random. Paul finishes this way in 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What? Are you kidding me? What is he content with? Not with not being strong in himself, but content in weaknesses. Not in people being kind to him, but content in insults. Not in ease of living, but content in hardships. 
Not in freedom of religion, but content in persecutions. Not in calm and peaceful existence, but content in calamities. Why? Because he learned the truth. And it's only when he knows he is weak and helpless in this life that he can turn from everything else to the only source of strength and peace. All of a sudden, he is strong in Christ. He is at peace in Christ. He doesn't need to fret or fear in Christ. He said it, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Without the word of God informing us of this truth, we would be just like the rest of the world. Lost and convinced there's no purpose in suffering. That everything happens by chance. And if we try hard enough, we can control the outcomes only to be left disappointed and disillusioned. What you believe about our triune God informs everything you do. Our lack of studying the Word of God and looking at our circumstances through the lens of Scripture leads to lack of understanding of what's happening in our lives. We think these are somehow unrelated when in reality, God has given us the answers for everything in His Word. You see, we don't handle suffering this way to be praised by men or to prop ourselves up. Look how good I am. Look how I handled this. This is all for the sake of Christ and making Him known. My mind is off of me and onto Him. The way you handle suffering is a testimony to the power of Christ in you. Which brings us to our third and final point. Contentment is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Let's finish out our last verse in Philippians 4 to see this final truth revealed. What is the secret to contentment that Paul lays out in verse 13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, Paul sets the parameters, and they are wide open. All things can be done through him. Who is him? Christ, or the Spirit of Christ in the believer. Through him who strengthens me. This is a promise for the believer, because only the born-again believer has the Spirit of Christ indwelling and empowering them. Now, when I was playing basketball in high school, no matter how hard I tried or how much I worked at it, I was never going to be able to dunk a basketball. Okay, the closest I could ever get was touching the edge of the rim with one finger and with no ball in my hand. Okay, this is... This is not one of the all things Paul is referring to here. Okay? This is not about making an impossible dunk or doing any impossible physical thing that would most likely be done to bring glory to myself. This is not a call to test God out and see if you can visit every continent in your lifetime or do some crazy thing because Christ has strengthened you for it. This is a statement of truth made in the context of all the things Paul has talked about learning by experience. The being brought low. The abounding. The facing plenty and need. The reality is unbelievers face those kinds of things every day just like believers do. The question is, how can a believer face them in contentment, in joy, without grumbling, 
and without crumbling and falling apart in despair and confusion and faithlessness? How can we keep from thinking things are out of control or that God is not with us? How? By the power of Christ who strengthens the believer to do so. How do I endure what I can't stop or what I can't control? I want to manipulate people or events. I want to change things by doing what I ought not to do because I want out of the trouble. Paul did not do it on his own. I cannot do it on my own. You cannot do it on your own. Paul said this another way to the Galatian Christians when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is vital that you and I understand these things Paul has written. These are not just special lessons for Paul. He's writing them to the church to inform them of the way they should think and behave in the midst of their own trials. And it's true for you and I. Listen, it doesn't matter if your difficult circumstances are because you preach the gospel like Paul or because you're ill or because you sinned or anything else. The response is to be the same. As Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Okay? Our own understanding is where we get off track. Our own understanding will always say we shouldn't be suffering this way. I want out of it. God wouldn't let me go through this. But is that true? Can God change your circumstances? Can he take away your pain in an instant? Yes. And he's the only one who can. Will he? Maybe. But what if he doesn't? That's the question for you and I as Christians today. What if it is God's will that you have that cancer and he doesn't take it away? What if he doesn't allow you to save, to to have as much money as you want or, or think you need? What if your loved one dies suddenly? What if you're fired? What if what if you're given a few months to live? What are you going to do with these realities? How are you going to respond? What will your testimony be to those around you? Because you will have a testimony. And whether you mention Jesus in that testimony or not, people will know what you believe about him either way. Will it be that that your professed faith was a sham all along because you find yourself with no hope and the people around you are affirmed now, now in their distrust of Christ? then come to Christ in repentance and faith today for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is the beginning of Christian contentment. Or will your testimony be like Paul's, to be content with whatever happens to you and your supposed comfortable life, even to the point of death, so that people around you are so struck by your trust in Christ, they want to know how they can have that too. How is that possible? Think about the most devastatingly difficult thing in your life right now. What if God does not change it? 
Are you putting all your hopes in him changing it? What are you going to conclude if he doesn't? Is God wrong in his plan for your life? You and I need to start believing what God says and applying it in our suffering, in our trials. We need to change our thinking by acknowledging who he is. As the psalmist said in Psalm 73, 25, and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is a Christian mindset. Jesus said the life of a Christian would be this way, but I think we somehow forget it in the heat of the fire. Let the words of Christ remind you what you've entered into. In Luke 9, 23-26, Jesus speaking, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. To take up your cross daily is to be content without requiring a change in your circumstances. Christian, learn this by experience. Believe it in the truth of God's word and live by it in the power of him who strengthens you. Let your difficult circumstances be seen as an avenue for glorifying your Savior in the eyes of a watching world. You can trust God with your life because he bought your life with his blood, Christian. Don't require a change in your circumstances. Can you pray for a change in your circumstances? Yes, you should. Pray for God to heal you. Pray for God to heal your loved ones. Pray for the outcome you desire. But don't put all your eggs in the basket of having your circumstances change for contentment. Knowing that God is sovereign over your life. He is in control. And for the Christian, even, even death is not to be feared. What did Paul say? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not some suicidal thought. It's, it's a statement of fact that you and I don't have to worry about our lives. Is it difficult in your pain and suffering? Absolutely. But God knows it. He will strengthen you for it. Find contentment in the truth about who God is. And remember, Christian, your sins are forgiven. Nothing better than that. You have eternal life. Christ Jesus. Nothing better than that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Christ our lives are hidden in him 
Nothing can harm us, Lord. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Father, I pray you would give us a biblical perspective on our suffering. I pray for all those here today. You know every need in their life. You know the the deepest suffering they have. You know whether it's because they've preached the gospel. You know whether it's because of their own sin. You know whether it's because of the way they were born. By your will, Father, there are no mistakes. If you knit people together in their mother's wombs, they are who you've made them. Lord, help us not to view the hardships in life because of disabilities, physical suffering as mistakes. I pray you would help us, Lord, to bring honor and glory to your name through our contentment in our circumstances. Thank you, Father, that Christ suffered more than we could ever imagine on our behalf. Lord, we have messed up thinking because we're sinful. We have messed up thinking, broken thinking, because the world continually tells us the wrong things about our suffering, that we should see them the wrong way. Help us, Lord, to come to you, come to your word for the truth. I pray today, Father, if there's someone here completely confused by their suffering, trusting in themselves, their own abilities, I pray you'd reveal the truth to them. Lord, free us as Christians from the bondage of believing that our suffering is random. May we only trust you, God. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, your love for us. Pray that these truths just bring about joy in our lives. We don't have to be happy about pain, Lord, but we can be joyful in Christ. May our testimony of how we handle our own sufferings point people to Christ. May you bring about salvation through the spreading of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.